Welcome back to another very special episode of For FinTech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Before we get to today's episode, one quick housekeeping item. If you're a fan of the show and want a new episode in your inbox as soon as they're released, go to forfintechsake.com and sign up. Very straightforward, takes you two seconds, and then you'll get every episode straight in your inbox. All right, let's get to the good stuff. My guest today is my friend, Ben White. Ben works in policy R&D at Plaid, a company you might have heard of. I learned a lot in this conversation, as I always do talking with Ben. He has a truly unique set of knowledge at the intersection of policy, regulation, and technology. We get into Ben's story and how he got to his unique role at Plaid. It really is informed by how he grew up and just his whole life story. It's really threads together nicely. We also touch on why policy matters in fintech and how it impacts us all every single day. And lastly, we get into the work Platt is doing in policy and regulation specifically. And painful to say, but ignore our chief's reference at the beginning of the conversation. We clearly jinxed them uh, with this interview. It was 100% our fault and I take absolute responsibility. So apologies to chief's fans everywhere. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ben White. Ben White. Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, my friend. This has been a long time coming. It's good to have you here. No, it certainly has. I feel like we've, we've been talking about this for years and uh, the day has finally arrived. It, we have all the way back to, I think you, because of some other connections we have back in the day, you visited Kansas City, came to Fountain City Fintech, and uh, we spent some time there and we were like, ah, oh, you know, we should do something eventually. And I think that was what, two years ago, and we're finally doing something eventually. So it's... It's a culmination yeah, think, of yeah. many conversations. There's been a, lot of, a lot of conversations behind the scenes that I'm sure have gotten us to where we are right now. But yeah, fondly remember that day uh, sit, sitting on some beanbag chairs as uh, as we like to do in, in the innovator world out here. And uh, you're absolutely the kind of guy. As soon as as soon as you get to know know you, it's it's exciting. You want to keep it going. Uh, well, it's mutual, man. It's mutual. There's not that many people in the world that I can geek out about these things with. So I'm excited to spend some time geeking with you. Uh, so before we get into the geekitudes, as previously discussed, let's start with a little bit of who the hell are you? Because I think there's this, you know, we all we all know Zach Parrott. We all know, you know, a lot of folks of, in the Plaid leadership, leadership team. Um, and I think, you know, there's maybe some really interesting stuff happening in the different pieces of plaid that we don't know about. So we'll get to that piece. But before that, let's just talk about Ben. Where are you from? How did you get into this world? Like what made you give a shit about finance? Like let's go all the way back and kind of talk about what made you, you. Perfect. Happy to. Well, uh, thrilled to be able to tell you that I'm from uh, the, the home of the reigning Super Bowl champions and soon to be repeat Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. Run it Kansas back, Missouri baby. Is, is, is my hometown from the, from the 816. And, uh, you know, came up in, in a household that was always really involved in the community, uh, you know, deeply involved in, in the faith community. And, and as a Jewish person was doing a lot of interfaith stuff growing up and really got a sense, uh, I've heard you talk about this on your podcast before, of just how diverse a place Kansas City is and, and how many issues it faces. Uh, you know, one of the most racially segregated cities in the country and in a way that really just, you know, smacks you across the face when you go across that dividing line. And yeah. when I moved back home after uh, after undergrad and really had this, you know, continued strong sense and I wanted to do something impactful in my community, uh, started working with some local nonprofits at, at, at the United Way at the time and 
really got this sense of, you know, what are the real issues that people on the ground are facing day to day? And, and where do they stem from? You know, I, I uh, studied philosophy as an undergraduate, and they're always told to go get to the radical root of the problem. Like, look at a problem. Don't just see it for what it is. Like, really get to its root. And when I was working with the nonprofits, it, it became pretty apparent to me that the root of a lot of people's issues were financial. Ultimately, what it came down to was they couldn't make rent, you know, fell behind on bills. Things got uh, tough within the household. You know, hopefully they could keep a roof on their heads or maybe they couldn't. And the help that they needed in the community, especially from a financial standpoint, just wasn't there. If anything, it was the opposite. They'd go out, they'd look for a short-term loan, and the only thing they could find was something that would put them deeper into a hole. And you know, a, a couple of years into that experience, it occurred to me, you know, I'm I'm sitting here. It's you know the mid 2010s. I'm I'm on my smartphone. I'm downloading all these new applications, and it you know occurs to me, why is this not a stronger delivery channel to get the products and services into people's hands when they need them? And I think it had really just started to take hold, uh, you know, with within the broader community. And and you know, at the time, I was. Uh, running these fundraising campaigns for United Way. On the one hand, I would go out and try to raise money from, you know, our local banks, the UMB and the Commerce. You know, we got the the Kemper family runs the the, the finance world in Kansas City. Right. We all love them. And then on the other end, I was going out to these manufacturing companies and basically giving the same pitch, like, "Hey, you care about your community. Why don't you give a little portion of your paycheck back to charity? We'll make sure it gets into the right people's hands." That's the entire business model of United Way. It started to occur to me, like, on the one hand, here's these banks that have all this money and are looking for better ways to serve their community. And here's all these workers who are going to work every day, working hard, trying to make ends meet, and having a hard time finding the product and services that work for them. And I was looking in the mirror, I was like, well, I am sitting between these two groups. Why don't we leverage this technology that we have to get these products to the people that need them? And that's where this idea came up for, you know, we all know that there's structures in place to help people save money, you know, for those of us who are fortunate enough to have full-time jobs, you get access to benefits and things like a 401k. Yep. But for those who are, you know, maybe part-time or hourly workers, they don't see these same benefits and they don't get all the benefits that we have of behavioral economics and all the research that goes into how do we incentivize people to make good choices with their finances. So the idea came like, let's build some, you know, 401k light. Like we don't need to, to change any laws here to deliver people, you know, an emergency savings account in the workplace. Like let's get people to a place where they can save I think a lot of people have heard the $400 problem. Half of Americans would have to put something on a credit card to cover a $400 uh, you know, cash crunch. Yeah. Let's just, you know, it's not to say that the money is going to appear out of thin air, but if we can start to incorporate technology, behavioral economics, and really meet people where they are with these products, we can solve a lot of problems. And that's, you know, you have an idea like this, and then, you know, God shows up and gives you a little bit of a gift. And my gift was this guy, Ronnie Washington. It, had just graduated from business school and had basically the same idea and had raised some money to go out and start to do it, start to do it. And that's where Onward Financial came up and folks should go check out Onward. Ronnie's still running it and, and you know, has truly been a pioneer in this space that continues to get attention. I just got off the phone 20 minutes ago with a guy who runs an industry group for retirement firms, some of the largest companies in the world. And they're all interested in how they can help people save more money for the short term. So we're still, I think, very much in this early phase of how are we using technology to get people into better financial products and services? Uh, so I worked on Onward for a little bit and then realized, you know, there were some opportunities going on uh, in the policy landscape where you can really solve a lot of these problems at scale. Like if you, if you can solve something on the ground, right, the next place your eyes look is how do we get this to everybody? And yeah, the app store is one way, but another way is Washington, right? Like if you can get 
uh, get these companies incentivized to try to offer these products to their consumers, there's a, there's a lot there. So I, I discovered this place, the Aspen Institute, a pretty well-known think tank, which is a very DC specific sort of firm that's really focused on, you know, how do we get the right sort of set of educational materials into the right people's hands, whether those people are, are the policymakers on the Hill or the business leaders uh, in the C-suites, how do we get them to think more and act more on these financial challenges that people are having? Uh, so spent a couple of years at Aspen looking into things like student debt, you know, uh, credit card debt, retirement savings, uh, sort of shorter term savings as well. And from there realized, you know, well, what's really sitting beneath all these technology solutions? Well, it's the data. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was working on this project on financial technology and financial inclusion uh, with a fellow who used to be on the policy team for a company called Quovo, which was acquired by Plaid at the start of 2019. He introduced me to John Pitts, who's now uh, my superior at Plaid, and, and the rest is sort of history. So let's let's rewind a little bit of that. And I want to like kind of pull on the thread of Onward specifically. One... I think that there is the fact that Onward, and this is kind of a nuanced piece, the fact that Onward is a nonprofit, I think is a really interesting variable, I guess, in this world. And I don't think that at this point, Onward is you know necessarily a household name. I think us, us nerds are paying attention and we know what they do, but it really is a very unique business model. And you kind of skated through it with, you know, 401k light, yada, yada, yada. But let's let's pull on that thread a little bit more. And just for the sake of the listeners, can you explain a little more of the onward business model and how important that opportunity was for a number of business owners in Kansas City with this payday loan cycle and everything else to be able to provide something like that? Um, and I say, I say, I say this and I ask this from a perspective of like, Onward is doing amazing work in Kansas City, but we need this work to happen across the U.S. We need this work to happen everywhere. So maybe you explaining Onward a little bit more triggers something in somebody's brain and then they do a thing. So let's let's go that direction just a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, to speak to the nonprofit thing, I think, um, you know, I mentioned my background in, in studying philosophy. I think Ronnie had a, a very similar approach to thinking things from a very moral perspective. And at the time, you know, I think both of us were pretty deeply influenced by the financial crisis that, that we were sort of still coming out of as an economy and, and also deeply sort of motivated by this. Honestly, it was a bit of a, a fear, I think, that as soon as we introduced the profit motive into a product like this, where you're trying to deliver financial services to people who don't really have a lot of money to pay for them, mm -hmm. that the incentive might be there to go out and try to charge a lot of money for the products. Now, yep. I, I think it's, again, it's a philosophical decision. I don't think it's a binary one where either you're a nonprofit and you are always and forever consumer beneficial or you're a for-profit and that's not the case, but it was a very deliberate philosophical decision that we made. And, you know, in terms of the, the, the way the product itself was structured and this was, was, you know, really fun. I would encourage anyone who has the opportunity to go out and try to do something entrepreneurial to, to do it. You know, we, we had to go and sit down with banks and basically propose to them, like, we're going to build an application, a user interface that on the back end is going to be, a bank account at your institution. At first, we even thought about it as a for the benefit of account, which I know quite a few fintech firms still do this with yeah. backend banking relationships. Yep. Uh, but what we did was we we enrolled individual consumers in credit union bank accounts with a local a local uh, credit union that we were introduced to actually by Sly James, who at the time was was the saxophone playing uh, mayor of of Kansas City, and uh, you know it was a, a very manual and hands on process at the time. 
of going, you know, showing up at these manufacturing companies, sitting down, filling out paperwork, enrolling people uh, in these products and services, which essentially would, you know, give them an optionality of what they would hope to save for in the near term. You know, are you saving to pay down your debt? Are you saving to, to buy your kids' school supplies? Are you saving to go on a little vacation? Uh, and then built the integration basically into their their payroll system, you know, giving their HR people all the tools they needed to set up an auto deduction to funnel that money, uh, you know, at a consumer's direction to a bank account. And then we went and worked with the credit unions to basically set up what we called a hybrid credit model, uh, a hybrid credit product, yeah. where if a consumer saves a certain amount of money consistently and didn't draw down on those funds for a certain period of time, they could get a hybrid secured line of credit where they could use that small amount of savings as collateral against a larger uh, loan if they wanted to, to have you know a, a larger expense that they couldn't cover with that pool of cash. So you know, I, I don't think I can disclose the terms of, of what those loans looked like, but you know, it, that I think was one of the key innovations was realizing even a tiny amount of collateral, financial collateral that the bank already has on premises. Like the bank had an unsecured loan product. The bank had a fully secured loan product. We said, you know, let's split the difference. And the bank was was clever and creative enough and, and truly open-minded and innovative enough to want to do that with us. Um, so, you know, it's at this point, it's been over three years since I've, I've worked with Ronnie on the project. And I don't know exactly if that's the, the same model that he's operating with today. So full disclosure on, on that front. Uh, but, but that's how the product itself worked. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's similar today and I think, I think we can all agree that Ronnie Washington is an utter and complete badass that has trudged through many a difficult water to get to where he is today. Um, but it, it really does. I still kind of obsess about the fact that it is nonprofit, you know, seeing salary finance, seeing a number of these other companies that are doing similar stuff in different geographies, I just, I hope that at some point, some for-profit or something that can really get the flywheel turning there happens because it's the, the impact on the world could be absolutely groundbreaking. Like watching the payday loan cycle happen in the, in Kansas city specifically watching people that, you know, whose tire got blown up on the way to work. And then all of a sudden their entire financial life is screwed up for the next 10 years and their credit score suffers and their family suffers. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of other things fall apart as a result of that one tire popping. Like it's just, I'm absolutely in love with the idea. And that's why Ronnie was in the first uh, cohort of Fountain City Fintech. But anyways, that I think leads in a really interesting way to your work at Aspen, which does lead to Plaid. And one of the things that I always obsessed about with Onward was like, it, man, if these, if these payroll deductions could be tax-free in the same way that a 401k is, right? A tax non-tax, just going directly over there without anybody, Uncle Sam specifically touching it. It seems like it could innately be a huge market and would be something that's really important to the world. But that all comes back to policy, right? And that all comes back to where you're sitting in Washington. And that all comes back to maybe not necessarily exactly the work you're doing at Plaid, but it comes back to, you know, this role, which I fucking love the title policy R and D. Like, does anybody else in the world even have a title that cool when they're working on policy, like researching and developing policy, creating the future. I've always wanted to be one of one when it comes to work. I've always (laughs) wanted to be the only person in the world that has my job. And when something like this comes, comes my way, I was very excited and, and thrilled to be where I am. So how much, 
and we'll, we'll get to plaid and we'll get to, you know, kind of the rest of this nerdy stuff here in a minute, but what, what gets you out of bed every day with this stuff? I mean, you've seen a lot. I mean, I think we've probably seen a lot of the same stuff talking about the payday lending industry, things like that. Like, was it your time at United way? Was it working with people as you were selling onward? Like, what is it that drove you to care this much? Because it's not like you treat this world like a nine to five. Like you are the biggest policy nerd that I get to talk with. And I love it. I learned so much from you, but it's not knowledge that gets gained overnight. Like you are obsessed with this stuff. Well, I, I, you know, maybe it is very specific to me, but uh, the opportunity to have an impact at the systems level, I just think is, is the most profound thing you know, one can do with one's life if I'm allowed to abstract out to that level. You are. I mean, you're a philosophy uh, major, so I'd be disappointed if you didn't take it there. <laughs> and and I think people have their different approaches to doing that, right? Like there's there was the part of me that, that thought that building a startup was the way to go uh, in that direction. There was a part of me that was, you know, let's take this super holistic vision of what is financial security? How do you think about a household level balance sheet? What are the in and the outflows? How do you prescribe the idea of financial health? Like it has really only been around for a decade, maybe two. I mean, Financial Health Network, formerly CFSI, absolute pioneers, like have just ripped open this space that did not exist before that is now on the tip of everybody's tongue, right? Like one of the things that I think we might talk about later that just gets me incredibly excited about the state of the world as it is right now is there are fights going on right now in the public sphere over who should take over some of these key banking regulators. And the fight is, should we have a progressive person or a progressive, progressive person? Yeah. And like, <laughs> yes, like the answer should be yes to both, right? There are, you, you, right, fundamentally it comes back to this idea, you know, some might attribute it to, to Bernie. I'm not going to call myself a Bernie bro, but, you know, in an affluent society, you should try to establish an ecosystem in which a rising tide can lift all boats. Our financial services system, I think, especially coming out of things like the financial crisis, folks in our generation have this massive wake up moment, realizing that the lifeblood of a modern economy, of a capitalist economy that is finance, is fundamentally set up. I mean, you've heard folks all the way up to, you know, PayPal CEO, Dan Schulman says all the time, it's expensive to be poor. Like These are fundamental issues facing our society that really can be solved, I think, at the highest level with some combination of hyper innovative technology, you know, consumer empowerment and a policy structure that puts people in a position where it's not that you can never make a mistake, right? I think fundamentally the issue with, with the way that we go about financial services today, and there was a tremendous paper, one of my favorites of the last, uh, you know, five or 10 years from, from two folks who I would highly recommend everyone follow on Twitter, read everything they say, Todd Baker and Corey Stone, Todd, Todd is at Harvard. Corey is uh, with Oliver Wyman. They wrote a paper that was basically, hey, we have this entire healthcare system that's based around making sure that people are well, making sure that people are benefiting from the structures that are in place around health. We, We only now have reached a point in the realm of financial services where it's even feasible to have that conversation. And what they did in this paper that I think came out maybe last October, it's very recent, as they proposed, um, essentially a new regulatory regime that would premise itself on consumer outcomes of financial services. It would say, you know, we are going to assess how how, uh, compliant a consumer financial product or service is and how compliant a provider of those products or services are 
based upon the outcomes that consumers get from those products and services. And look, the reality is, like this is one of the challenges we're trying to figure out at Plaid right now too, is what does it even mean to assess those outcomes? Mm-hmm. Like there's researchers out there that are working with, you know, these granular data sets that have only recently started to come uh, into grasp as a result of sort of this new proliferation uh, of, of um, consumers being able to control their data that are only now are we able to actually think about, okay, well, if I sign up for this credit card today, does it actually improve my financial standing a, a year out, five years out, 10 years out? We, we don't even have the systems of analysis in place yet to be able to do that. I think we're going to get there. Uh, like to me, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is that the idea that we have a system that touches every single person that has, you know, provided me and you and so many other people tremendous benefits. Like the, some, something as simple as having, you know, a, a payments network that allows us to transact with one another so seamlessly uh, is, is an incredible innovation and something that benefits many, many people's lives. But there's still this underpinning of, you know, I, I, I know you and I talk about this a lot. It's like, is, is this idea of financial inclusion, mm-hmm. is it just about expanding access to any financial product? Or is it about building a system in which people can count on their experiences with financial products and tools to add benefit to their lives? I think the idea that we might currently be in a position where, again, this combination, I've spoken about this, this dynamic before with Joanne and, and David on a previous podcast, this dynamic between policy and innovation. Which one is it? Which one leads? Which one follows? Yeah. Is it intertwined? I think we'll talk a little bit more today about a certain example that we're really focused on at Plaid, where policy has actually opened up tremendous space for innovation to happen in financial services in a way that, you know, I think when some people hear that, they're like, ooh, this sounds like we're getting back into the pre-crisis. Like, innovation, you know, it can be a value-neutral term. Um, but fundamentally, my point here is that we're, we're, in this, we're in this moment in time right now where the combination of technological innovation, forward-thinking policy, and, you know, for, you know, to be completely honest, like coming out of COVID and seeing the, the level of investment that our government recognizes that it needs to make in individual citizens in order to keep the economy going, in order to keep food on people's tables... I think, you know, heading into this this next sort of era, uh, there's just incredible opportunity to to sort of establish a new normal for for people moving through their day-to-day lives. It's interesting how much of everything you just said comes back. Well, my my head goes a couple of places. One is it seems like so much of this comes back to the ability to score an individual, right? This this idea of a FICO, this idea of a FinHealth score, this idea of you know, having one number that associates itself with your financial health seems number one, like kind of an antiquated thing. But number two, like, we're almost just trying to recreate that wheel with a whole bunch of different inputs, but still just have one number that's the output. And the other piece is I think that it's interesting how much your why and the work that you do comes back to the actual experiences that you had with people. One of the things I'm noticing more and more recently is folks talking a lot about underbanked and unbanked and all of these, you know, financial health buzzwords 
for folks that they've never met for situations that they've never been in, right? Like you grow up a multimillionaire and then you like the, the Trump kids or something talking about the underbanked or the unbanked is just like, you don't know about the underbank. You've never talked to anybody that had to go to a check cashing store. And that's the thing that was one of the things that I love about your perspective on all this is like, you've actually been in the experience of understanding why people need this stuff, why this equilibrium needs to get created and why things like open banking are dramatically going to change the way that we function as a society, not just as an economy. So anyways, I get, you, you get me excited listening to you talk. And, you know, the, the fascinating thing I think about it too, and the, the sorts of conversations that I really enjoy that you bring up are that, you know, we might think that we're onto something and that, you know, walking into a check casher is necessarily, you know, uh, an unsophisticated or misinformed activity. And then you go out there and you, you pick up a book like Lisa Servon's The Unbanking of America. I think that's what it's called, where, where she I think so. basically goes undercover. And you want to talk about interacting with people. She works at a check cashing shop for, for you know, a couple of weeks and realizes these people are getting the best service that they can find out here. You know, there, there's uh, technology can do some elements of it. But I also think, you know, there's incredibly important work going on with firms like Financial Health Network, like Prosperity Now, like Commonwealth, like Aspen that are really trying to figure out like technology is not a panacea. Innovation is not solving all problems. We need to be, be able to have this, you know, hyper personal where there's a need for high touch, let's have high touch where there's a need for things to be automated, let them be automated. Otherwise, like we are not going to design a one size fits all solution. And I think you're exactly right. That's where open banking and this idea that, you know, if a consumer can control and access their data, there's this natural incentive for innovators and for developers out there to say, hey, if, if this solves one person's problem, how many other people are facing the same problem? It really presents this opportunity to do, you know, you start targeted. I mean, you obviously, if you want to go out and raise venture capital, that, that TAM has to be huge, man. And, right. uh, and there's, right. there, there's, a lot, there's a lot to say for that. But I also think it opens up this new approach to markets, which is, you know, how can we solve for one specific issue facing one specific community or one specific, you know, similar type of person uh, and really build for that. And, and one thing that I'm really excited about uh, that I think is, is really coming to the fore, uh, you know, today, tomorrow, and, and into the near future is this new idea of what it is to be a community bank. Mm. I know that that's a very loaded term. That means a lot of things, especially in the regulatory space. Yeah. Uh, but I, one thing that I was, I just saw a headline this morning that, um, this firm that started, you know, not too long ago that I think like Killer Mike is is somewhat behind of Greenwood oh, yeah, the, Bank, which yeah, is Greenwood a, Bank. Yeah, Alex Harris. They just announced that in yeah. the in the first 100 days, they've had half a million folks sign up. Like yeah. the idea that a community bank doesn't necessarily need to be geographically centered. It, it should, again, there's a, a regulatory system built around small banks and community banks that should should absolutely stay. You know, community banks are absolutely critical to many, many of our communities. And, and we should be thinking really hard about how we build them up, how we support them. You know, Plaid thinks a ton about how we can get these smaller banks connected to the FinTech ecosystem. Uh, but you know, I think there's also this opportunity to think about specific communities, which have you know, similarities, uh, whether or not it's in their day-to-day -day 
lives or whether it's in sort of the way that they think about the world, the way that they want to approach the world, uh, or even wanting to be a part of a community can be a reason to now engage with a new type of, of financial product and service. Uh, so I think, I think there's just like this new space that's really opening up in terms of how do we find those markets? How do we engage with them? And how do we understand uh, on a personal level, going back to, to your earlier point, how these people want to be served? This, to me, that's one of one of the real opportunities in you know heading into this next decade. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a for profit mechanism like the Platt example, right? It's a for profit mechanism to improve society, right? It's like the the more access that we can give folks to the financial the the classical financial system. Candidly, the the financial system that the average white person has, the white man has access to in a a beneficial way that maybe some of the other classes in society don't, um, you broaden the market, right? Like you increase the number of humans there. It, it just reminds me of like Facebook sending up those, I don't know, I think they shut it down, but when they were sending the, the hot air balloons to increase internet or whatever across all the different parts of the world, just so that other people could sign up for Facebook. Like it kind of feels like a lot of the work that you're talking about is, is those balloons. And yeah, maybe Plaid gets bigger or maybe this company gets bigger or whatever, or, you know, Stripe growing the GDP of the internet, these things get bigger but they also improve society at the same time because they're increasing access. They're increasing all of these other pieces that are really important to a societal shift upwards economically kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, my entire career up until this point has been deeply mission oriented and one in which, you know, there were certainly moments in my life that I was, you mentioned the nonprofit status of onward I was like, oh, you know, I'll stay in this think tank space for a while. I'll stay in this policy space. There's plenty to do. You know, I don't need to go join a private firm. But then, you know, as you mentioned, like Plaid is such a mission-focused company. You know, we we rolled out a brand new mission last year, which is unlocking financial freedom for everyone, uh, which is a huge and very bold statement. But it really is, I think, a, the truly captures uh, the feeling of of the leadership within the company of of the people who work there. And the the level of commitment, you know, I think it it really just makes everyone work that much harder. You know, I think uh, even coming out of last year, all the challenges that they come from not going into an office anymore, not seeing your coworkers face to face. It was an inspiring year, I think, for everyone who worked at the company, not just in terms of the growth that we saw uh, coming off of of COVID. You know, we we did quite a bit of of research in terms of surveying consumers and heard them say, you know, three quarters of consumers said that they relied on technology to manage their finances during COVID relied on like that is a fundamental need that is being provided, you know, not in every single instance by plaid, but by this idea that by providing people access to financial technology and, and, and tools that can support them, it's becoming a new, a new normal and a new go-to for them. Uh, and then, you know, an, another example of being so so mission driven and mission aligned as a company, which you know is not just a pitch for me, but again, it gets back to what gets me up every day. Some of the work that we did around the COVID relief programs and, and the Paycheck Protection Program, where some of these small businesses, you know, you had to go to your payroll provider and pull down your information and download a PDF and send it over to your bank. Like that's Plaid's specialty. That's our expertise. Like the, I've heard Zach say before, like Plaid's number one enemy is paper. Like we don't <laughs> want people to have to download and fax. Like it's, if the information is there and you need to get to somewhere else, we will, we will build that integration to make it possible. And, and 
you know, it was incredible to see coworkers step up and in the, the, a matter of days and weeks, you know, working nights and weekends, truly for the benefit of, of the greater good and of seeing what we could do for society. And you know, I think it's, it's potentially a benefit to come out of COVID in particular also that folks are going to want to continue to explore more ways to, to make that sort of an impact. Yeah, it's it's nice that we're getting to the point. Nice. I don't know. It's all still a clusterfuck, but it's nice that we're getting to a point in society post post COVID as if it's actually over is another thing that I struggle with when people say it that way. But it's nice that we're getting to a point, I will finally say, where we can see the silver linings in a lot of this, right? Like we're coming out of the storm now that the inauguration's over and everything else enough to be able to like take this rear view mirror of like, okay, it's not over yet, but like that was a, you know, we're at mile 20 or something of this, of this marathon and time to like look backwards and say, okay, what, what did happen there? And it seems like there is, especially from the seats that we sit in, in wanting to push paper into, you know, actual digital first databases, wanting to pivot the world in the direction that we've all known that it should have been going a long time. And all of a sudden this gas gets lit on the fire and like, it happens very quickly and we all have to work nights and weekends. And it just, you know, weirdly during a pandemic working from home, we're all working harder than we've ever worked because everything's escalating and moving so much faster than it ever has. So it's, uh, I love when these things line up that way. It's beautiful. Let's go to, let's go to open banking. So we talked about it a little bit. This is one of those things that I can talk enough about for about three minutes. And then I run out of the room because then I start sounding like an idiot. And you are one of my go-tos on this specific subject. So let's, let's almost do like a 101 of open banking and then get into kind of how it's functioning in the world. So let's start with that piece of number one, what is open banking? Because I think people throw that buzz term around a lot and often misused in my experience. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's a great place to start is, is just with that definition. So, you know, open banking refers to an ecosystem in which consumers can access and share in digital formats, their financial data really across the financial ecosystem. So I think at first it was thought of as a way to introduce innovation and competition into some markets where there wasn't innovation and competition I think we're all familiar with sort of the traditional approach to financial services where it's every product is offered under one roof. You know, you open a checking account when you're 16 years old, you go with your mom down the street to the local bank branch, she hands you a checkbook. You know, next thing you know, it's 15, 20 years later, you're getting a mortgage with that same bank. This is the one place you'll do all of your banking. Where was your um, first bank? Just since we have the KC thing, I'm curious. Where where was your first uh, oh, your first man. checking account? I think it was called Nations Bank. It was on State Line 119th. It's now okay. a Bank of America branch, but this uh, is like I think isn't it was everything. acquired and then acquired. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you you take enough time and everything becomes a Bank of America branch. But anyways, yeah. okay. Well, my my mine was all, Country my, Club. So oh nice. Yeah, my yeah. folks are all about Community New America, which I love. They're very local Kansas City Bank. Speaking of Patrick um, Mahomes, anyways, continue. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, open banking, there's, there's a couple of different ways to think about it and, and a couple of diff- different approaches that exist out there. And really, sort of the, the axis, as you can think about it, is, you know, on, on one axis, there's to what extent is this driven by law and regulation and by policy versus just being a market-driven focus? And then the other axis is what exactly, like, what's the scope of data that we're talking about here? We're we just talking about my checking account. Are we talking about my credit card account too? Are we talking about 
my investments, my liabilities, my mortgage, et cetera. Um, so really the place that this got started was in Europe with the second payment services directive, I think sometime in the mid 2010s, basically said, you know, payments providers need to be able to make their services essentially interoperable by making the data accessible, uh, which then the United Kingdom, no longer a part of the European Union, uh, but still subject to PST2, uh, essentially leveled up into what they called really the first formal open banking regulatory regime, where this, you know, their competition and markets authority, which oversees the nine largest banks in the United Kingdom, recognized, again, like there wasn't enough competition in the banking sector. Consumers weren't switching banks enough. They weren't looking outside banks for other sorts of products. So they established a formal open banking regime, which, you know, granted consumers a a legal right uh, to be able to port their data from their bank accounts uh, to third-party providers. And this really sort of gave rise to what are now known as the challenger banks. So Monzo and Revolut and Starling and N26, which have since come in and really captured pretty substantial parts, especially of sort of the younger markets in those in those in those places. Uh, but the thing that's important to note about the United Kingdom is that the scope of data is fairly limited. So mm-hmm. the only data that you can actually, you know, have a legal right to to pull down and port and can essentially go and if a bank is blocking you from accessing that data, you can go in and and report that and ensure that they do provide it to you. The only data is on your your what they call your current accounts, which is basically your your checking and savings and, and the, the accounts that you make payments with. Um, but there's two different ways that, that you can uh, sort of access and, and, and manipulate that data. One is called account information. So a third party can come in and provide a personal financial management tool where it says, okay, we'll track your spending. We'll give you recommendations. You know, we'll basically display your information back to you. Uh, on the other hand, there's what's called payment initiation services providers, which is, you know, they essentially get what's called right access to your data, but they can actually initiate payments on your behalf. Uh, so, you know, it started with a really robust structure. They actually required all of the banks to invest in this new sort of quasi-governmental entity called the Open Banking Implementation Entity, which, you know, designed an API spec from the bottom up, which every bank had to build to. And now, you know, every consumer in the United Kingdom has you know, a legal right to to access and share their financial data. Um, So once that started to take off, sort of other governments started to take notice. Uh, At the same time, you know, Australia was thinking about data in a much broader fashion and has actually since rolled out what they call a consumer data right, which is widely looked at as like the most comprehensive approach to, to granting consumers data rights, where it's not just your banking account, it's not just your checking account, it's all of your banking services. It's not just all of your banking services, it's your banking services and your utilities information. It's oh. not just that, it's also your telecommunications information. So they're thinking really broad, really holistic that you know, fundamentally data belongs to a consumer. That means all of your data uh, and a consumer has the right to share all of that data with whatever third party wants to come in and offer them, You know, whether it's competitive rates or some of these budgeting services, um, as an example, so Australia actually just they're doing this in phases. Uh, so they started with just open banking over the next couple of years. They're rolling out this expansion to telecommunications and utilities. But again, they're sort of looked at on a global scale as as the leader. So those are the two that have taken so far sort of the strongest regulatory backed approaches. On the other hand, you have these parallel sort of approaches going on, I think, between 
United States, which to this point, and we'll get into a little bit more detail because this could change quite soon, but yeah. you know, there's one stipulation in Dodd-Frank that tells consumers that they have a right to access and pull down their information. There's a lot of questions around you know, to what extent, what's yeah. the scope of data involved there. We'll get into more detail because the, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which oversees that stipulation, has actually recently put out a call for information. Plan is, is going to put out this 50-page comment letter we've been working really hard on to basically lay out like, here's the state of play in the financial data ecosystem, and, and here's where we think the future should go. Um, so there's the US, and then there's also Singapore, which are both open banking sort of leveled up to what's called open finance. Open finance hmm. is this term that refers to not just the bank account information in your checking account, but all of your financial information. So, you know, I said Australia has financial information plus uh, open finance is basically your financial information extending so far as, you know, any information that has to do with your spending, your payments, your investments, your liabilities, even including things like your payroll, uh, which Plaid uh, put out a white paper about a couple of months ago. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm drawing that, that connection. The United States has been essentially in, in a market and industry driven approach where there's this one stipulation from the government. There are industry efforts underway collaboratively across data, aggregation, data aggregators like Plaid, uh, financial institutions, and third parties uh, to basically spin up like industry-based standards through this consortium called the Financial Data Exchange, of which Plaid is a member. Um, you know, uh, the last thing I'll say about this comparison to Singapore is that you know Singapore has, uh, I think, just naturally a highly innovative banking ecosystem. And their banks actually voluntarily came together to design their own APIs to make this data accessible. Uh, whereas, you know, in the United States, like some banks are starting to build APIs, the adoption is fairly slow. But, you know, APIs is really like the the future of financial data sharing. You know, it's this structured mechanism that you know banks can put into place to, you know, have all the insights that they need into how the traffic is flowing. Uh, and to really provide like the the most ri rigid and robust structure uh, for data sharing, and you know, Plaid has made commitments here in the United States that by the end of 2021, we would want to have 75% of our traffic committed to be on APIs in the future. But it's a really, I think, long and 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 uh, and and challenging in many ways road to get there. Uh, the last thing that I'll say, because it's you know, personally of interest to me, and uh, quite a bit of work that I've done in the last couple of months is Canada has sort of lined itself up to be the next government-driven open banking system. Uh, Canada's banking sector looks quite a bit more like the United Kingdom than it does the United States in that there are five or six really dominant banks that have, you know, 80, 85% market share. Uh, and then, you know, uh, quite a bit of long tail uh, you know, versus the United States, which has 10,000 banks, the largest of which, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't have more, I think, than, you know, 15, 20% of, of deposits. Mm -hmm. um, so Canada is thinking about, you know, we've seen these regulatory approaches come to fruition elsewhere. How do we build a really purpose-built approach for our own ecosystem that meets our own needs? And, you know, Canada is also taking this really interesting approach, which is basically they have what's called the digital charter, uh, which they look at data and data portability as a, a driver of innovation across 
all ecosystems. And they see open banking as the first sort of beachhead uh, that can make data portability really resonate with consumers. I think, you know, consumers are largely aware of fintech and largely aware that when they're downloading an app, they are, you know, taking control of their data and sharing it with a third party. But, you know, in terms of just an understanding that data is something that you can control, as opposed to being something that's sort of taking place in the background without your knowledge. Yeah. Uh, that's something that, of course, Plaid is spending all day, every day, building those controls for consumers. I think governments are really interested in having consumers be highly, highly aware that those tools exist and really changing this conversation about data from one that is, you know, the cat's out of the bag. What do we do yeah. to rein this thing in to this is something that consumers can really benefit from if we have, again, this proper combination of technological innovation that's really focused on consumer outcomes and sort of a really strong policy space where, uh, and you know, we'll, we'll get to this in the context of the CFPB rulemaking, you, know, you have all the structures in place that give consumers that control and that protection and that security and that knowledge that I can go about my business in such a way, you know, where it's like going to a restaurant down the street. Mm -hmm. I know when I go to a restaurant that I'm not going to be poisoned by the food. Yeah. Um, that is, you know, the future that I think everyone in this financial technology ecosystem wants to see. And the direction that I think we're already moving in, in terms of consumer awareness and the consumer control uh, and being able to, to access and, and share your data in a way that's fully uh, with, you know, with, with consumers at the center. The open banking conversation, right? Just that term, the idea of data control. I think it's very ethereal for folks that aren't total experts on it, right? I think it's, it's easy to kind of wrap your head around the idea of like, I want to own my data. Nobody else should own my data, right? Like that's just kind of a philosophical point of view that makes sense, I think, to the average human. One of the things that I think is most helpful and most interesting for people to understand is what that actually means in practice, right? So if you're a, if you're a consumer in the UK, if you're a consumer in Europe, if you're a consumer in Singapore, what does having a very forward thinking open banking or even open finance structure mean to you? What do you get to do that you would not get to do normally? What data can you pull back from people? How, like, how does the permissioning work? Like talk, talk us through what that means for the human on a non-policy level, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you're completely right. Like data is the sort of thing where if I were to walk down the street and someone were to hand me a, a zip drive and say, here's all your data, I would say, thank you, now what? Yeah, um, if it was I, Bitcoin, I could, you'd be good, but otherwise, yeah. <laughs> as long as I can remember my password. Right. Um, <laughs> I think fundamentally, the purpose of open banking and, and the both the philosophical and the economic and the policy drive behind it is that it incentivizes innovation. It basically says, if I'm a consumer and my bank is not offering me a tool that I want to be offered, rather than just throwing my hands up and saying, well, I guess I'm not gonna be able to use that tool, my ability to take control over my data incentivizes someone else out there in the world, some genius developer you know, sitting behind a screen like we all do these days to build a tool that they know I'm willing to compensate them for building for me and to know that because I can control that data and no one can tell me that I don't control that data 
And I can use a tool like the ones that Plaid and Plaid's competitors provide in order to make that data accessible. It, it, the incentives are there for that product to be developed and for the outcome to come back to me. So it's, it's about the ultimate output. It's not necessarily saying, you know, here is a cache of, of data, you know, go do something with it. It's saying this data in one way or another is being used to generate value for somebody. Is that person you or is that person, you know, the, per, the, the bank that you happen to be banking with that now has all of your information because you've chosen to bank with them? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think ultimately it's about consumers being able to sort of move through this marketplace, knowing that their ability to take that level of control opens up a whole new suite of products and services to them and, and which they can access, you know, seamlessly without necessarily having to, to concern themselves with, you know, um, do I need to necessarily switch banks in order to, to access this new product or service? Do I need to write the code myself so that I can budget for myself with, you know, some people still like to do that, you know, plaid, uh, partners with Microsoft Excel now for people who want to build a budget within Microsoft Excel. There's a tool now called Excel Money where Plaid can pull down your information from your bank account because you want that information to be pulled down to populate a file for you. Now, I'm the sort of person I'd rather use Copilot or, or yeah. YNAB or a, a budgeting tool that can help me you know, day to day because my core bank provider doesn't offer me that tool. So it's really for a consumer, again, about what's the end result? What's the end output? Um, and, and, you know, do am I able to trust that the information that is presented to me is sufficient and is accurate and, and does actually help me? Yeah. And so one of the use cases that I'm always most interested in, and I don't know if it falls under the under the umbrella of this specific conversation we're having, but one of the examples that I find most fascinating is the idea that I could go apply for a mortgage, right? At three different locations. I want to provide, I want to go and see if NBKC or Rocket Mortgage or I don't know, yada, yada, yada bank gives me a better, a better rate, right? Or gives me a better, whatever it is that I'm looking for. Usually it's a rate. And I want to say, okay, yes, I will grant my data to you three. And then I will have the ability to revoke my data, pull back all of what I've shared with you and make sure that you don't have kind of a read only or write access to that data after we go through the process of the, you know, attempted mortgage underwriting or whatever it is. Does that fall under the umbrella of open banking? Is that like a, am I thinking of that correctly and kind of the way a user would actually own their data in that manifestation? Yeah, so this is also where that, you know, uh, intertwining of policy and innovation is really important because uh, we're in a place now where it is possible and companies like Plaid are building these tools for consent management. Plaid has a tool uh, that is currently in beta that, you know, gives the consumers a location where they can see all of their connections, revoke those connections as they see fit. Uh, in addition to some of the products that Plaid offers are just a one-time pull. Mm-hmm. So the, if you were to use Plaid to go in and apply for a mortgage, that would not necessarily require you to provide a continuous stream of data. Uh, in some instances, it might, if that's what the provider is asking you to do. Sure. Uh, but but in other cases, you know, it's all they need to see is, you know, how much money do you have today? And that is information that can be shared once and doesn't need to be shared again. 
Um, and, you know, going back to this rulemaking that we're seeing out of uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a lot of the questions that they're currently asking have to do with, should there be standards around for how long the data should be able to flow before a consumer has to re-authenticate or reauthorize mm. their data? Um, and, you know, that was something that was actually incorporated in the United Kingdom. They had a 90-day re-authentication mandate, which basically said that every 90 days, whatever bank that you had connected your third party with, whatever bank was sharing your data, could, you know, had to break your connection with that third party, and you had to go in and re-authenticate yourself just to prove that you still wanted it. Now, the issue with that is, if you're using a budgeting app and, yeah. and you're using it to track your finances, you don't want to have to go through this yeah. this process yeah. every 90 days. Like you, you're the one who's in charge of it. Yeah. Ment so, already you know, breaks it's, enough it's as this, it is. Yeah. It's this need to, <laughs> you know, to make sure that throughout we are ultimately putting the consumer in control and not, you know, prescribing sort of artificial or arbitrary boundaries that say, Hey, we can just fairly assume that most consumers you know, they do something once and they forget about it. No, the idea is like the future that we're driving towards is one in which, yes, the benefit that consumers accrue from access to their data comes back to them in the form of the products and services that they are able to obtain. But they also retain rights and controls over those data that ultimately belong to them and are not dictated by their bank or not dictated by the government. Like we, this is, if we're going to get into the space of your data as your property, then we need to get into the space of property rights. Yeah. You know, I'm not a lawyer here, but I think ultimately you can get a lot of people on board with the idea that if the data belongs to the consumer, then no one but the consumer should have the rights and the authority to decide what to do with it. Uh, and that's, you know, the system that I think we can work towards under this overall umbrella of a more structured ecosystem that it appears the the U.S. might be moving towards, depending on uh, honestly the priorities of the incoming CFPB director. Um, so let's talk about those and the the imminent changes around the world of finance due to a, a new administration and a specifically democratic administration after four years of, you know, trying to remove potentially some of the teeth that the CFPB did have. It seems like the the average American has suffered uh, in a number of ways as a result of the CFPB, maybe not being able to be what it once was and what it was meant for. So let's go there. I mean, what does the future hold for the CFPB? What do you think are going to be some of the, some of the impacts of this changing administration, be that through the CFPB or just more broadly in, you know, just the world of finance with also Janet Yellen becoming treasury secretary. I saw that, like, what is going on? It's wildness. That woman is, she's hitting everything right now. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think DC, I can tell you is quite excited, as I mentioned earlier, to be back in a position where we're, we're now discussing uh, the minutia of policy and not the grandiosity of, uh, uh, of whether or not democracy will survive. So you know, looking forward to the next four years of getting back into the weeds uh, and really getting getting deep on these issues. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of what we can anticipate from all of these regulators, which I think is a fairly, you know, uncontroversial statement for me to say is heightened regulation and heightened supervision. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, what's what's interesting to me is that that doesn't necessarily seem to be something that's so scary any longer. You know, I think it was generally uh, maybe in the, uh, we could talk about sort of the effects of, of COVID 
Uh, I think in the post-COVID era, we can just continue to expect the government to take this all-hands-on-deck approach where you know, increased regulation, yes, there will ultimately be crackdown on bad actors, but you know, the ultimate objective of the government is still going to be, let's, let's make sure our economy continues to thrive. Let's adapt to whatever this new normal is. Um, let's, let's not do anything too rash, like pulling back quickly, like what we saw after the global financial crisis, um, and, and make sure that, um, you know, the, the structures that we put into place going forward are ones that are ultimately truly in the interest, not only of individual consumers, but of the economy at large. Um, I think, you know, getting into the more granular issues, uh, what I certainly think we can expect out of a, a CFPB under a democratic administration is a sort of revamping, you know, let's get back to where we were prior to the past administration, where a lot of, as you mentioned earlier, what was, was sort of unwound. And, you know, we can talk about the payday lending rule, which came into came into effect for only a very brief amount of time and was sort of immediately pared back. Uh, in addition to some other rules around, you know, student debt servicing um, and really just, you know, consumer finance writ large. But the, the key issue, of course, that, that we're excited about and that we hope will continue to, to remain a priority as it was coming out of the last administration is this, you know, tiny stipulation within Dodd-Frank that, of course, has now reached its, its, uh, its 10-year mark, uh, which says that consumers have a right to control and access their data, but, you know, has not yet come under rulemaking. And, you know, the CPB is, is this, this really fascinating place where you know, there's a lot of potential rules that require rulemaking to become rules. And this is one of them you know, in order to become truly enforceable, where you know, the, the CPB has, uh, over the past 10 years, issued a set of principles that basically outline, here's what it means for a consumer to have access to their data. They held a symposium in February of last year where a lot of leaders from around sort of the data access ecosystem got together and talked about here are the really key issues. And then finally, in October of last year, released a, an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, which essentially says like, this is lining up to be our last uh, sort of collection of information from the industry, from consumer advocates, from everyday consumers who care about this stuff before we actually go and, and try to take pen to paper. So uh, this ANPR, the Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, had 46 questions in it covering a really broad range of topics. And, and what I think is so exciting about this one particular piece of regulation of Dodd-Frank 1033 is that it really is a forward-looking piece uh, of, of law. It basically says, you know, similar to sort of the thesis we were laying out earlier, like, there's this information technology phenomenon taking place. Mm -hmm. Again, Dodd-Frank, you know, we're talking 2009, 2010. Uh, we need to give consumers control over this information. You know, obviously it's the Consumer Protection, uh, you know, Act, meaning the, the, you know, step one to consumers being able to comprehend what's going on with their finances to be able to see that information. Uh, but in addition to seeing it, also being able to access it, authorize it to third parties, opened up this entire space for innovation. And a couple of things I think are really striking about uh, this advanced notice of proposed rulemaking they put out. The first is that, you know, they basically break the ecosystem down into three parts. There's data holders, which you can generally think of as financial institutions. There's data aggregators, which you can generally think of as Plaid and our competitors. 
And then there's data users, which is all the third parties out there that consumers are signing up with that, that you know, need the inputs of their data in order to function. One thing that I think the CPB is, is really starting to grasp that I think is really critical is that the lines between data holders and data users, as more consumers start adopting financial technology, are increasingly blurring, mm. right? Like banks might have once thought of themselves just as the source of the data, which consumers were then coming and, and, and taking with them and going elsewhere. Increasingly, banks are seeing themselves as recipients of data from other banks and also from third parties. Like if you want to see a consumer's holistic financial picture, you need to see the money that they have in their you know, investing account that yep. sits outside of the walls of your financial institution. You need to see the money that they're paying down in their student debt, which they might have accumulated under uh, a refinancing scheme. Like there's the, the opportunity to be uh, you know, the center of a consumer's financial life is still very much out there. And the role that the you know data connectivity and I think what the CPB has been very smart to recognize is that the data is going to increasingly flow in every direction. You know, Plaid thinks of itself as a service provider to financial institutions who are interested in receiving those services as much as we are to fintechs. Like that is the future. It's consumers permissioning, taking their data with them in every direction. Uh, and so I just think that the CPB is really smart to recognize that each of these groups play today. Uh, and, and we can expect that those roles might continue to blur going into the future. The other thing I think they're really smart to recognize and, and really emphasize is there's competitive tension in this space, right? Like a, 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 a financial institution that sees their customer leave their service and go to use someone else is going to feel some incentive to, to get that customer back. You know, our belief is that restricting a consumer's access to their data should not be a means of keeping that customer around. Like the days of the walled garden are past. Uh, and I think the, you know, the CPB asks, I think, a series of 10 questions that are all focused on what are the competitive incentives in this ecosystem and what can we do uh, to mitigate those? And, you know, again, our comment letter will be public in a matter of days because uh, this is due on, on the 4th of February. But essentially, the point is, the best way to mitigate those competitive incentives is to have a mandate that applies across the board so that no matter who's holding a consumer's data, they have to make it accessible so that you're not seeing either side or any side of the ecosystem sort of playing that card of, well, you know, we don't want our consumers leaving uh, for other products. So we're just not going to let them do that by not letting them share their data. Uh, and, you know, there's there's a ton yeah. of other considerations out there. It's really not that that simple and straightforward. There's a lot around, um, you know, what sort of relationships need to be in place across data aggregators and other parts of the ecosystem. And that is something that Plaid spends a tremendous amount of time on uh, in terms of communicating with, with both sides of, of serving our customers, you know, regardless of who they are, and of also communicating and building really strong relationships uh, with banks who are in large part the sources of that data. Uh, but I think ultimately, you know, the, the, the thing that we hope the CPB will keep in mind is that, you know, solving this one piece of policy, giving consumers this access and authority over their data, actually will have spillover effects to a lot of these other elements. Like if you want to have a payday rule, where part of this payday rule was that payday lenders 
had to be able to assess the ability to repay of their customers. They had to mm. be able to look at their customers' financial pictures and say, can you afford to take out this loan and pay it back without taking on another loan on top of it? The, the only way that such a thing is possible is if a consumer can share the necessary information with you so that you can run that assessment for them. So, you know, essentially the, the, the top line thesis of our entire comment to the CPB, what we're really pushing forward is an, an entire range of consumer finance issues become more solvable if you give consumers this level of control over their data. You're incentivizing innovation. You can establish new guardrails over whatever those products and services might be. We saw a lot coming out of the CFPB where they're issuing uh, you know, approvals to all kinds of fintech products. So there was an approval for a certain type of earned wage access product, which mm -hmm. is in many cases, a product that consumers who would otherwise be using a payday loan now use. So you know, it, it, it's sort of simplistic to say that the new CFPB will, will sort of make it a 180 from what the previous one did, uh, because I actually think there's quite a bit of learning that they can do from the last one uh, in terms of the active rulemaking that took place and, and not, uh, not the scaling back that happened. How important is it, do you think, that founders engage with the policy landscape? Like, I know you guys at Plaid just rolled out this FinRise uh, accelerator. One of the quotes that I loved from that story was, the accelerator's bootcamp portion, which will be a three-day affair, plans to address this dynamic in the lens of how startups should deal with regulatory and legal pressures in the financial services space. That is very non-average for a fintech accelerator, right? It seems very policy-focused, very regulatorily focused. Why and what should founders be looking into caring about in this specific industry, even if they're not doing lending yet? You know, if it's chime ceo or something and they're just doing secured cards and aren't quite down that road yet but eventually they will be like why should they care and at what point should they engage and how do they engage yeah well you know it's it's interesting that you bring that up because i, I was talking with a, a coworker who's been really leading the charge on that effort and for those who don't know finrise is uh plaid's new accelerator that we launched specifically focused on bipoc founders uh, please, please go and look into it. We're, we're tremendously excited to be able to, to offer these, these support. Um, you know, I think policy plays an important role for a couple of reasons. One, you know, anytime you're starting a new project, especially one that touches people's finances, you know, it's very important to be aware of where those bright line triggers are, you know, like there's finances for good reason, you know, one of the most highly regulated spaces. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you don't want to find yourself in a situation where there's, uh, you know, you're, you're running afoul of, of anything that could ultimately sort of, sort of put you under. And I think, you know, it's, it's really exciting to be in the place we're in right now where the development of the API ecosystem makes it such that a lot of those things are taken care of on the back end if you could just build the right integrations. But, you know, even as you start thinking about your, your product or service, I think there's really two reasons that policy matters. One is, you know, steering clear of any issues that you might otherwise just not necessarily be aware of, right? If you're hyper-focused on your end users and hyper-focused on solving the problem that you want to solve, it's probably a second or third order issue. Um, you know, you might not necessarily even have any counsel in place right now if you're really getting started at the, at the stage of which we're looking, which is basically between seed stage and series A is, is really the focus of, of the founders that we're targeting here. The second reason is that 
policymakers themselves are really interested in what's going on in this space. Mm -hmm. right? Like we talked about the CPB a little bit. The, the, the CPB, you know, recognizes that technological innovation in finance is, is reaching people in new and potentially very profound ways. And it's really this sort of two-sided chain of communication where on the one hand, you know, it's important to learn and understand the space in which you're operating. And on the other hand, you can be truly influential. If you come up with something that you think is is powerful and that you think should be taken into consideration, you know, these, these agencies, um, you know, whether it's a, a banking agency that wants to understand how you're thinking about partnering with a bank, in which case, you know, go with your bank to that regulator, mm -hmm. or if it's a, a consumer uh, regulatory agency that just wants to understand, you know, how are consumers engaging with your product? Uh, you know, are, are you fully compliant with all the rules around, uh, uh, you know, disclosures and, and everything? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really critical to, to be able to understand that and, and to recognize that there's potential really for, for influence there too. How important is trying to influence or impact that policy? Like how important is it to have relationships with your regulators beyond, Hey, I'm going to do a thing. Cool. All right. We'll talk later. Like how, how important is it to be consistently involved with regulators and policymakers as a founder? Or is that something that somebody like Zach at Plaid wouldn't think about until, you know, the company is kind of an expected, expected success, right? Like, is it, cause it's interesting that you're focused at Finrise from seed to series A, like that's very early to engage with a lot of these groups for the most part, I think from the average view of the world, Versus I think most think most people think, you know, once you're a firm size, then you go talk to regulators and you make sure everything's okay. And maybe you even have a lobbyist, uh, yada, yada. But like, at what point, at what point is it about influencing it? And at what point is it about in the early days, just understanding and making sure you're not coloring outside the lines? You know, I think the, the line that sets those apart is probably different for every company. Yeah. I think, as you mentioned earlier, depending on the, the landscape in which you're operating, like if you're a lending business, the sooner the better. I don't necessarily think for a business like that, you're going to have uh, a whole lot to say in terms of the lobbying side early on yeah. that isn't already being said. But if you're operating in a space where you think you've discovered sort of a new approach to an existing problem, um, or, you know, this is why I think we, so much of this is about providing the right level of information and also for Plaid to be able to understand the sort of, of challenges that these early stage founders are seeking to, to solve. And for us to do some of that work on their behalf of, of trying to get some of that mapping done. Like, I don't think we will ever be in a position where, you know, a, a founder who hasn't yet found product market fit is already starting to think about policy, right? I think right. there's just many, many stages before that um, where, you know, I think once you've once you've stood yourself up as a company, have an LLC, and maybe you've had you know a part-time legal counsel take a look at what you're working on and, and sort of give you that clearance. You know, I, I think generally the structures that are in place are relatively helpful. I think what we're trying to solve for in this particular element of Finrise is for us to be able to go out and do some of that advocacy on their behalf, especially for this population of founders who we I think anticipate are trying to solve you know fairly niche problems. Uh, you know, I could be wrong. I haven't seen the cohort of applications quite yet. Um, but I think a, a huge amount of it comes down to, you know, again, we're looking at four years coming up of what we can expect, I think, to be fairly progressive policy 
if not in terms of financial services regulation, definitely in terms of the sorts of you know safety net and benefits uh, that we're offering consumers. And I think the more we can know about the impact that certain fintech products can have in that space, that's where you can go out and start doing some of that advocacy work yourself. And a lot of a lot of that advocacy is also you know, on a state and local level and not necessarily on a federal level. So you know, I think we're incredibly excited to learn a lot about the types of products that these companies are building so that we can do some of that work on our own to, to sort of map that to our own priorities and the priorities that we see out there. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of introducing to the Aspens of the world and the think tanks and, and even lobbying firms if, if, if companies are, are at that stage. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, I think founders have a, a decently strong sense that these are things that they should be aware of, and we want to, uh, to to be as supportive of those efforts as we can be. I love it, man. It 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 brings joy to my heart that you all are doing things like Finrise, especially with some of the things in the news recently about Plaid. I think there was the sense after the the news that the Visa acquisition merger did not take place that you know everybody was like, "Oh God, what's Plaid gonna do? It's the end of Plaid," and then. It seems like uh, it seems like things are continuing to move, and you all are continuing to just execute against the roadmap without taking into account any of the maybe PR BS that has happened over the last year. So, honestly, there's not even a question there. I just want to give you a chance to kind of plug Plaid to whatever you know upcoming stuffs going on. Where can people get more information about Finrise? Get more information about you. Um, Plaid.com feels like an obvious place, but I'm guessing there's other places people should be looking for different things. And maybe even if you're hiring things along those lines, what, what can these listeners do to help you guys? Yeah, well, you know, Plaid absolutely hiring, uh, you know, can't comment much at all on the, on the visa situation other than, you know, it was a, a mutual decision to walk away from the deal uh, but, you know, certainly not the end of, of Visa and Plaid. Visa is still an investor and, and, a, and a partner. And there's a lot more than we'll, I think, we'll plan to do together. You know, as for Plaid as a company, 2020 was a momentous year for the company and, and for fintech as a whole. Uh, you know, we're really excited to continue growing the customer base and expanding the product set and, and expanding internationally and really continuing to, to forge these partnerships. Uh, so, yeah, I encourage folks to, you know, check out the blog, check out the website, you know, we'll be putting out these comments on the CPB letter fairly soon, which if you want to sit down and read 50 pages of, of policy writing, please, you know, send me an email so I can say thanks. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to come out with, with more in the future. And I think the future is very bright for, for FinTech in general. This is awesome, Ben. I appreciate your time, my friend. I think we're going to have to do like a, an every six month check-in or something and just see kind of how things are, things are going, talk about policy, talk about plaid, talk about all the new stuff you all are doing. So Let's uh let's keep this going, my friend. I appreciate your time and I look forward to uh to our next meeting and hopefully someday soon in person. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Zach. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Ben White. If you want to learn more about Ben or Plaid, I put the pertinent links and more info in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you love the show and want more regular communication, you can get our weekly For Fintech's Sake emails at forfintechsake.com. And that way you can have every episode straight in your inbox. Until next time, y'all, stay healthy, keep your head high, and go Chiefs. We'll get them next year. That's right. Two weeks in a row is worth saying.